My name is Mark Putman. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills, and I'd like to um, join my voice with others to uh, wish you a blessed uh, holiday weekend. Hope you're having a great Fourth of July celebrating the freedoms that we have as Americans, but even more than that, as you worship today, the freedom that we all have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, are you the kind of person who likes to know what makes things tick? Are you always trying to discover everything that you can about the world around you? Would you describe yourself as attentive or insightful? Would you be happy if you could make the world a little less of a chaotic place and a little more of an organized place? I see some nodding your heads. If you can answer yes to any of those, you might very well be a number five on the Enneagram, the observer. Now remember that the Enneagram is simply one tool that we can use as we journey toward gaining insight into understanding who we are, who God is, and who we are in relationship with God. Now, <clears throat> our Enneagram personality type is just a number. Our true identity is found in Jesus Christ. And it is God's truth that sets us free and brings about transformation. I think I just almost choked on my own spit. That's a little embarrassing, but anyway, let's go on. <laughs> So as we take this journey together, we have to remember that the healthiest way that we can use the Enneagram is by focusing on our own self-awareness, not trying to diagnose other people around us. And while we all have one personality type that's primary, we can probably see parts of ourselves in the other personality types as well. I know that's been true for me in all four of the first um, Sundays in this series. I've seen little bits of me in each one of the personality types. Now, we are called to be a reflection of Jesus to everyone we meet. Our lives are to focus on loving God and loving others but how each one of us goes about doing that is going to look a little bit different based on our personality type. And while we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, as we learned last week from Psalm 139, which was one of our scriptures, one of the Psalms that King David wrote, who we talked about last week, we are each created uniquely and on purpose and with a purpose. Our uniqueness has both advantages and disadvantages. We have healthy and unhealthy versions of ourselves, which are going to impact our relationships. And when we take time to know and understand ourselves, digging into the whys of our personalities, we will be better equipped to fulfill the mission and purpose God has for our lives. Thus far, we've looked at the first four personality types. And today, we're going to look at personality type number five, the observer. Now, observers are the kind of people that want to know. They want to understand. They want to make sense of the world around them. Sometimes, number fives are known as the investigative thinkers, they go through life with curiosity and with a craving to learn new things. They are insightful and observant. 
They desire for the world to be a less chaotic place and a more organized place. And they work hard to be independent. They appreciate their privacy. And they tend to conserve their mental, emotional, and physical resources. And that can end up damaging their relationships because they can become extremely private and sometimes emotionally distant. Now, the most basic desire of a number five is for other people to see them as capable and competent. And so they work hard to master skills and different areas of knowledge. They love to observe things and contemplate things in life, like the sound of the wind or the sound on how a synthesizer works. Or maybe they'll go out into their backyard and take notes on how ants are making that anthill that they observe back there. And so as they immerse themselves in their observations, they begin to internalize this knowledge and they gain a feeling of more and more self-confidence, so much so that they may go out and try to begin to play the synthesizer or go up to anyone they meet and start telling them what they have learned about ants and how they build anthills. Fives value being seen as someone who has something insightful or unusual to say. And fives are not usually very interested in exploring things that are already familiar or well-established. Rather, their intention is drawn to the unusual, the overlooked, the secret, the unthinkable. Investigating unknown territory, knowing something that others don't know, or creating something that no one else has ever experienced allows fives to have a niche for themselves that no one else occupies. And as you might imagine, fives often make great scientists, inventors, engineers, and other vocations where discovering things and finding out how things work or how to make them work even better is prized and valued. Number five's fear being thought of as incapable or ignorant. They don't want to have social or emotional obligations placed on them. They don't like to be surprised or have their secrets shared or to be forced to interact with others beyond what their limited energy reserve allows. These things can make a number five feel like they don't exist or like they are being invaded by other people or in extreme cases even like they are being annihilated. At their best, others will experience the observer as visionary and mindful, like they can make pioneering discoveries and find entirely new ways of doing things or perceiving things. Think of such famous fives as Albert Einstein, who has influenced so much of modern physics with his theory of relativity, or Jane Goodall, whose pioneering work with apes and chimpanzees has added much of what we know about these great animals. At their worst, observers may be experienced as stingy, intellectually arrogant, or disconnected. Sometimes the personality of a five can become fixated, and it creates self-defeating self problems for them. They can become so absorbed in the areas that they love to investigate that they can get distracted from the actual pressing practical problems of the world around them. 
Sometimes they can even become reclusive or isolated from reality. Now, a number five's core weakness or core sin is avarice. Feeling like they lack inner resources and that too much interaction with others will lead to catastrophic depletion. Fives withhold themselves from contact with the world, holding on to their resources and minimizing their needs. Think of a type five's energy reserves like a cell phone battery. Now, an extrovert will wake up in the morning with all the energy reserves they need to interact with people all day long, right? An introvert will wake up with about 70 to 75% of the energy they're going to need for the day. But somewhere around three-fourths of the way through the day, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, they're going to need to get away by themselves, plug in, and somehow elevate their energy level again. But type fives wake up each day with only 20 to 25% energy available to interact with people before they experience what feels like catastrophic depletion. And so most fives have a private place where no one is allowed, where they can plug in and recharge. Now for the first four weeks of this series, we've shown you a little video clip right about now in the sermon featuring one of our staff members who is the number that we're talking about that day. But we don't have any fives on our staff here at Anderson Hills. We've, it's not unusual either. We've seen this phenomenon in some other personality types that we've used, like strength finders. There are certain slices of personalities that just aren't really drawn to vocations in the church. You don't find many engineers becoming pastors and vice versa. Not unusual. So um, certain, pass, per, certain personality types sort of gravitate to certain vocations and not to other vocations. But even though we don't have anyone on staff who's a number five, there is a person of interest from Scripture who was probably a number five, an observer, an investigator. And his name is Nicodemus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Nicodemus, but in John's gospel, we certainly see him investigating Jesus. He appears several times throughout the gospel, and he's usually just trying to figure out who this man is, especially in the beginning. And near the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 3, we, he arranges to meet Jesus one night under the cover of darkness. Let's hear that scripture from John 3 verses 1 to 18. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, 
but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son." Now, from this passage, we learn that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a religious group who always seemed to be at odds with Jesus, wherever you see them in the Gospels. And additionally, Nicodemus was a member of the ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which served kind of like the Supreme Court in ancient Israel. They were the arbiters of Jewish law. Now, most Pharisees intensely disliked Jesus because the things that he said and did always seemed to undermine their authority or challenge their viewpoints. Jesus often called the Pharisees hypocrites for telling people to do something when they wouldn't do it themselves. But we see that Nicodemus is searching. He is open. He is looking. And he must have seen something in Jesus that caused him to want to know even more. And so he asked to meet with Jesus at night. Now, we're not sure exactly why. Maybe he didn't want some of his Pharisee colleagues to see him going to talk to Jesus. Maybe he was afraid of what they would say to him. And so he went to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Maybe, as a five, he just didn't have the um, level of energy or the emotional bandwidth to deal with all of his Pharisee colleagues who would start asking him a million questions if they saw him with Jesus. But whatever the reason was for coming at night, Nicodemus wanted to come and see Jesus personally. He wanted to learn for himself just who this man was. Now, we know that Nicodemus had respect for Jesus because he called him rabbi. He called him teacher. He said that he knew Jesus was a man who had come from God because he was doing so many miraculous things that no one could possibly do unless God was the power behind them. And then Jesus began to teach Nicodemus about the kingdom of God he said that no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. And this kind of confused Nicodemus because he knew how the birth process worked. But what he didn't understand was how a man who had already been born once as a baby could possibly be born again. 
you see he is still seeking clarity. He's asking questions in order to get answers to those questions. He was motivated to gain knowledge and to uncover truth. So Jesus began to share with Nicodemus the truth that without being born of water and the Spirit, a person cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because you see, becoming a Christian and being a citizen of God's kingdom means more than just making a couple of small little wanted to live. And he did. And soon after that, he met a Christian woman named Fiona, and he wanted to go out with her, but she wouldn't go out with him because he wasn't a Christian man yet. But she gave him a Bible. And he said, I read it and I read it looking for answers to all of my questions about life. And he said, I started tearing through it, trying to find something, and I ended up finding Jesus. And he said, suddenly my whole life made sense. That kind of searching reminds me of Nicodemus. In verse 14, Jesus began to teach Nicodemus that salvation is more than just head knowledge. He recalls the story of Moses lifting up the bronze snake on the pole in the desert. You can read about that story in Numbers chapter 21. You'll remember that the Israelites had rebelled against God in the wilderness, and God sent poisonous snakes among them which bit them, and many of them were dying. Well, the Israelites confessed their sin before God, and they asked Moses to intervene, and God told him to make a bronze snake put it on a pole, and whenever the Israelites were bit, they could look towards that bronze snake on the pole, and they would receive healing and live. That's where the symbol of snakes twisted around a pole for the medical profession today comes from. It's a symbol of the healing that God offers to people. And in the same way Jesus said the Son of Man, Jesus, would be lifted up on the cross and that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. Jesus gives us then perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, we're not really told what Nicodemus' reaction to Jesus is in John chapter 3. What, what is his response, we might wonder, to all that Jesus had told him in that nighttime meeting together? But we catch up with Nicodemus a couple of other times in the Gospel of John, next in John 7. And here Jesus is once again encountering conflict with the religious leaders. He has been teaching in the temple during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And some people are absolutely amazed by his teaching. And others think that he is demon-possessed. Well, the Pharisees hear about all of this, and they send some guards to the temple to go and arrest Jesus. I'm going to pick up back in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
Well, after hearing this, the crowd is still divided, and they're a little bit confused about who Jesus is and if he is the Messiah or not. Some people wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, we're told. Continuing in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own member, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, in this passage, we can clearly see that Jesus has made a mark on Nicodemus, Nicodemus is growing in his understanding of who Jesus is, and it appears that he is acknowledging in his head what he has heard and learned from Jesus. And so he opens the door to hearing even more from Jesus, and he appealed to the Jewish law, which did not allow for a man to be condemned without having two witnesses to testify against him. Nicodemus wants to uncover the truth, but this truth is so very different than what the Jewish leaders thought was the way the Messiah was going to come. No one thought the, the Messiah would be a suffering servant. They thought he would be a glorious king riding in to save the day. No one believed that the Messiah would come from Galilee, even though we know now that Jesus was from Bethlehem, just like Scripture foretold it. That's where he was born, even though he had lived in Galilee and was coming to the temple from there on this occasion. As a five, though, Nicodemus would have been very interested in discovering truth that turned out to be unexpected, something that no one thought would happen in the way that it did. Well, the last time we see Nicodemus in John's gospel is after Jesus' crucifixion. We find this passage in John 19, 38 to 40. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Clearly, something has happened inside of Nicodemus. He has grown in his understanding of who Jesus is, and he has made a radical commitment to Jesus. He is now willing to be seen publicly in the company of disciples of Jesus, collecting his body after the crucifixion. And he was willing to sacrifice and spend what was probably a very large sum of his own money to provide 
and administer spices for Jesus' burial. So how did this transformation happen in Nicodemus? And how do number fives, the observers, learn to grow in grace? Well, first, fives can work on learning the importance of expressing feelings and emotions and not stuffing them down or burying them. Fives need to learn to get outside of their heads and in touch with their feelings, to not mask them or dull them with something like alcohol, but instead to get active, to move their bodies, to run, to do yoga, to let their endorphins keep them engaged in the reality of the joys and life and happiness that God wants to give to them. A five can also learn to trust their instincts more and more, and not just their head, becoming bolder and quicker to take action. Second, fives need to learn to value community more. They need to learn the gift of sharing what they have and what they know with other people. I mean, sometimes fives are prone to isolate themselves, but we were created by God to live in community with one another. We need one another in community, don't we? And finally, fives can strive to move from belief about God to belief in God. In other words, they can move from knowledge to belief. This is sometimes called the ABCs of faith. A, we learn about God. B, we believe in God. And C, we choose to believe in Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 7 warns about people who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Fives can move from just learning about faith for learning's sake to discovering the truth of the gospel. And Romans 10, 9 shares with us, that salvation is both knowledge and belief. It's not an either or, but a both and. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, Nicodemus grew in grace. He moved from just exploring faith and gaining knowledge for his head to believing in his heart that Jesus is the Son of God. He joined with another disciple of Jesus to care for Jesus' body. And I might add that Nicodemus then responded with his hands. He carried the burial spices to the tomb as a heartfelt offering from himself, an expression of his love for his Lord. From head to heart to hands. That is the full expression of Christian discipleship. Number fives, and let's face it, every single one of us here, no matter what your Enneagram number is, the most important decision that you will ever make is to profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There is no one else who has ever been resurrected from the dead except God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And His is the name by which we are saved. Make the most important decision of your life and put your faith, your trust, and your belief in Jesus Christ today. Will you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, we come before you today so thankful for who you are and how you want nothing more than to reveal yourself to us, to meet us right where we are, just like you did with Nicodemus. You met him where he was. You accepted the questions that he was asking from him, and you answered them. You revealed yourself to him. Lord, help us today to ask questions that we can come to know you more and more, to place our faith in you for the first time or to renew our faith in you and to take even bolder steps in our faith journey with you. We thank you for all the ways you reveal yourself to us. And as we prepare to gather at your communion table, we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup. We thank you for Jesus, for being all that we need and more than enough. In your precious and powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.